You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. school, a big class of medical students early in their education, and one of those big lecture halls with lots of students in it, and uh, the professor, a doctor, comes up and says to them, starts telling them that he feels it's possible to uh, determine somebody's illness by the taste of their urine. And he goes on and talks about that for a while, and then he holds up a beaker of urine. And he talks about it for a while, and then he sticks his finger in the urine, and then sticks his finger in his mouth. And then he goes down to the first row of students and hands it to the first student and says, I want you to do exactly what I did. So the first student, very reluctantly, stuck his finger in the urine and then stuck his finger in his mouth and passed it to the next student. And that student also very reluctantly did the same thing. The the beaker of urine worked its way down the first row and up the second row. Eventually, very slowly and methodically moved it through the entire lecture hall, at which time the professor went and got the urine and came down to the front of the class. And he says, I hope today you learned a very important lesson. And I hope you learned a very important lesson about observation. Because if you had noticed, I had stuck my index finger into the urine but I stuck my middle finger in my mouth. They learned... took a little while for you guys to figure out which is the index finger and which is the middle finger. Yeah. So hundreds of students tasted urine. The professor did not, is the point. His point was they thought they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. They thought by his, what he said with his authority that they were going to do the things that they, you know, they didn't know any better. They were just going to do that. And yet, a little embarrassingly, it wasn't the most, no pun intended, tasteful thing for them to do. I worked on that one. No, I'm just kidding. Today we're going to talk about a passage of Scripture where what, well, the people involved in it, Saul, King Saul and the people, think they're doing the right thing. But yet, it turns out that they're not. They think they're obeying God, and they're doing the exact opposite. They're actually disobeying God. So um, we are working our way through the Old Testament, highlighting places where it points to Christ and hitting big points. Last week, we talked about the birth of, of Samuel and how he, as a prophet, was going to announce the coming of a king. Uh, and now, in, in, in the rest of Samuel, he, he does... Um, He's a prophet for a while, and then um, Israel asked for a king. Now, he didn't, when he was born, there was no king in Israel. There was no, there was no right. He was a judge. He was a prophet. He was supposed to be the one directing Israel. But Israel came to him, and they said, we want a king. Now, there was provision in the law for a king. This wasn't unusual. Even in the law of Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, there was some stipulations about when you have a king, here is what it, here's the requirements of a king, and, he, and I'm not going to read it to you, but he goes through the different requirements of a king. And then he also says in there, interestingly, in the, at the part of those requirements is that the king is supposed to be somebody who puts his throne, is, is the throne of the kingdom, but the king is supposed to by himself or himself copy the word of the law, make a copy of it for himself. The Levites are supposed to check his work, make sure he did it correctly, 
And then he is supposed to keep that copy of the law with him at all times, and he is supposed to review it regularly, read it regularly, to make sure that he lives and he leads the people according to the word of God. And so that was the stipulation. Well, the people of Israel start saying, hey, we want a king, we want a king. And, and when they do it, though, they don't do it because of what we would expect them to do. We are told that the elders of Israel gathered together with Samuel, and they said to him, Behold, um, now appoint for us a king and judge us like all the nations. Like all the nations. So they required a king, not because it was part of God's law or because God, hey, you can do this in this way. They said, we want to be like everybody else. So we want a king. And we're told in 1 Samuel 8 that, that, the, uh, uh, that Samuel was upset about this. And the Lord said, you know what, Samuel? He says, Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they, want, they are not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So God recognizes that the reason they want a king is because they don't want to follow me as God. And he, said, he goes on and says, According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you, Samuel. So now obey their voice and give them what they want, but I want you to warn them what this means as a king. So Samuel goes, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he gives a lengthy warning to the people what it means. If you want a king, let me tell you what the king is going to do. He's going to take your sons, he's going to make them soldiers. He's going to take your daughters, he's going to make them um, perfumers and bakers, and, and they're going to work for us. He's going to take the best of your crops. He's going to take the best of your animals. He's going to use you in, in ways that are benefit himself. And then he ends it by saying, and you will be his slaves. And the people's response to this is, is this. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like the nations. So even with Samuel warning them, this is not a good way to go about this. The people insist on a king. So God says, give them a king. So we're not going to read the whole thing of how Saul is selected. Uh, he didn't volunteer to be king. He actually ran from it. It is kind of humorous. Josh and I were talking about it. Samuel calls the, the tribes together and then hooks down to a, a clan and then a family from a family of sons. And he says, and the new king is Saul. And everybody's looking around like, Where, where's Saul? And it turns out Saul was hiding among the baggage. Uh, he hid himself because he didn't want to be king. And yet God said, you're it. So he became king. And he went through um, and did some exploits. And in his commissioning of being king, Samuel says these things to him. He says to, to Saul as the new king and to the people, he says a lot of things, but here's one of the things he says to them. He says, you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if you both, you and the king who reigns over you, shall follow the Lord your God, it will go well. But only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Now consider what great things he has done for you. In other words, God is even pointing to think about what God has already done for you in Egypt, in the promised land, in the provision. All the great things he's done for you. Remember the thing. Remember his sovereign grace in your life as a nation. But still, um, if you do wickedly, you'll be swept away, both you and your king. So they enter the, the idea of having a king this way. 
Now what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, Saul is king. He, he gets some soldiers. They have a few battles. Uh, he has his ups and downs. Okay, he's the first king. There's going to be some awkwardness to being a king. But after a while, God has said, okay, you're king. I got some things for you to do. And we're going to read for us, and I'm going to read through 1 Samuel 15. I'm going to read through the whole chapter, but I'm going to make some comments as we go. I want to read through the whole chapter to get the big picture of the events, and then I'm going to draw some principles out of the whole big picture of that today. So in 1 Samuel 15, it says this, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to appoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek, I noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and women, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now just stop here for a second. We're not going to unpack the whole idea. Did God really order them to kill everybody and everything? Uh, we addressed that actually a couple weeks, about a month ago. Um, I did a, a message um, where they went into the promised land, and I think the title of the message is, Did God Command a Genocide? So if you're struggling with the whole idea that, did God really command them to kill everybody? I'm not going to repeat what I said then. So go listen to that message, and we walk through uh, those kind of texts. But anyways, what happened is when they were leaving Egypt and they were wandering the desert, the people of Amalek attacked Israel from behind, and they were uh, hurting people. They were taking the weak and the invalids, and they were killing people. And God said back in, in, um, to, to them in Deuteronomy, uh, he reminded, tell Moses, and Moses actually wrote it down as part of the law, when we get into the promised land and things get going, we're going to come back and destroy Amalek. So it's part of the law, part of what God told Moses to do. Well, now they're in the promised land, they have a king, and God says, time's up for Amalek, we're going back and destroying them. So that's the situation. And then verse 4. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them and Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go from, the, from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So there was grace. Even the people who were not Amalekites, they lived among them. Uh, uh, Saul showed them grace. Verse 7. And then Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, uh, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of Amalekites, captive, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people of the edge of the sword. Verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and of the lambs, and all that was good, and would not, they would not utterly destroy all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So understand what they did. What, their orders was to destroy everything. Every living thing must die. People, animal, everything. They didn't do that. They saved the king. And notice how they determined what to save. What they liked, they saved. What they didn't like, they destroyed. That's what they decided to do. That's not what God had asked them to do. Verse 10. The, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, 
for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Verse 12. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul went to Carmel, and behold, he had set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Let's just stop here. Saul has the battle. He does what he does. He goes and builds a monument to himself. Now, what does that tell you about Saul's perspective on the battle? Good thing or bad thing? Why do you build a monument? Yeah, for himself. This was a good thing. Look what I did. Woo! And uh, he was very happy. So that's why you make a marker, so people remember. This is what Saul did. Samuel, so verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Stop there. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Has he performed the commandment of the Lord? Does he believe he has performed the commandment of the Lord? Yes, he does. This next line by, by um, Samuel, um, I think, is one of those classic comical situations. You wish you were there when it happened. Okay? He goes, verse 14, And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul comes before him and says, Hey, I did it, Samuel. And bah, bah. Uh, he's busted because all the animals around him. It was just, so, so it's almost comical, it is comical, that it was so obvious that he didn't do what he was supposed to do. And Samuel just didn't say, no, you didn't. He goes, hmm, let's see the evidence. I'm stepping in the evidence here, okay? This is, not, this is not going well. So Saul, verse 15. So Saul said, now listen to, listen to his wording. Samuel just busted him for not doing what he's supposed to do. So this is Saul's response. Saul says, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we devoted to destruction his wording is very intentional when he talks about what didn't go well the sheep and oxen he goes they the people did that but the part that went well the destruction part we I was a part of it did it well and also he adds something that was not part of the original description of what happened he says to sacrifice to the Lord in the original account of what happened, there was nothing about sacrifices. Is I like this, I keep this. I don't like that, I destroy it. Suddenly it's about a sacrifice. Verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me in this night. And he, sa and he Saul, said to Samuel, Speak. And Sam Verse 17. And Samuel says, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? Let's just stop here for a second. Samuel's not buying Saul's explanation. And the word pounce on the spoils is a phrase used 
when an army comes in, and they use the actually earlier in even 1 Samuel, when Israel as an army defeats the Philistines, and they go in, and they, after they win the battle, they pounce on the camp. They take the spoils of war back with them. They raid the camp. So he, Samuel's using the same language here. He obviously thinks the people ravaged the Amalekites for their own personal gain, not for the Lord. Then it goes on, verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. I have devoted the Amaleks to destruction. Verse 21. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. He still denies it. He still doesn't understand and does not accept it. Verse 22. This, verses 22 and 23 are the heart of the passage, of this account. Samuel is now boiling it down to this is the heart of the matter. Verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of the rams. For rebellion is as sin of divination, and a presumption is an iniquity of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. In verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of God and his words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now go, therefore, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. He says, okay, Saul says, okay, I sinned. I listened to the people. I disobeyed the commandment. But Samuel, let's pretend it didn't happen. Can you come back with me and worship with me? The people need to see you as the prophet with me, giving me kudos for the battle. You need to come back. Not a real authentic repentance. Verse 26, And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And as Samuel returned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to your neighbor of yours, who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Verse 30. Then he said, being Saul, I have sinned again, yet honor me now before the elders of the people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. So again, Saul admits that he's wrong, but he also is more concerned with what the people think than, than truly repenting before the Lord. We're not told why. We can surmise. Samuel decides to return with him. Probably because he thinks that if, this is my guess, but if he doesn't return, Saul may do something rash, or it might cause such a scandal within Israel that this fragile kingship is going to just cause trouble. He also knows that God has another king Samuel's going to bide his time until that other king arises. For whatever reason, he goes back. Verse 32. And then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And 
And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Wrong. Verse 33, and Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgag. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah uh, of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. We see in this passage that Saul, as king and leader of the people, and the people as a whole, because they were together, were given a mission. The word actually is used twice, mission. You have something to accomplish. And this mission was to fulfill scripture. This is something that Moses had recorded many, many years later to be the will of God. I need you to do this. So God said, it's time to do that. So I want you, Saul and the people, to go on a mission. In verse 18, he says, Saul, Samuel says the law, and the Lord sent you on a mission. And in verse 20, Saul says to Samuel, I have gone on the mission which the Lord has sent me on. So clearly, there was something for them to achieve, scripturally to achieve. To achieve excuse me. And I, we use the word mission for even here at Red Sea. There are things biblically in God's word that he wants us to achieve. And we call our mission at Red Sea, we use the three-part phrases, to draw to Christ, to develop in community, and to deploy into culture. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking each of those, but that is, if we look at Scripture, we have looked a lot at Scripture, and we're not the only ones. Many churches have similar phraseology. What is the purpose of our church? What is the purpose of us as Christians? We don't just sit around and wait for heaven to come. We have reasons, a mission that God wants us to accomplish. And it is to draw closer to Jesus. It is to develop into a community. It is to deploy into culture. We are to fulfill the Great Commission. Uh, to Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's acting as a king and says, therefore, go and make disciples. We are all committed to going to make disciples. The mission of the church, quite simply, is not just to seek converts to Christianity. It is to make disciples of Christ. And we have, at Red Sea have helped us to uh, try to understand that, have come up with what we call pathways. Can you show the pathway diagram? The pathways, as you, if you've been around with us for the past year, you're familiar with this. So we, as we wrestled with this, okay, we have a mission. What does that look like to be a disciple of Christ? What does it look like for us to follow Christ and be on mission, to draw to Christ, to develop in community, deploying the culture? So we clarified it a little more. And, and above the prayer and apart from peacemaking and to the left is, should be the words, draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploying the culture. But we said as we do this, we, we first of all centered on the gospel. We center on who God is and what he's done for us in Christ, sending Christ to die for our sins. But Christ has not only died for our sins, that also achieved not only our salvation, our forgiveness for sin, but also gave us new identities. Those identities, you can't really see them well in the black circle, is that of servant of Christ and family together as the body of Christ and ambassadors for Christ to the world. And then because we are in those identities, we have things to do. We have a mission. So to help us understand what that looks like, we have three three uh, steps or stones or disciplines that we put to those missions to help us understand that. And based on the gospel and who we are in Christ, we have things to do, both as a church as a whole, as families, and as individuals. We feel this isn't the only way to articulate this, but it is a way, and we hope a helpful way, for us to understand what is the mission that God has called us to. 
Now, why am I going through all that? This is, what has that got to do with 1 Samuel 15? Well, as I was reading this and had been studying this and thinking about this, praying about this passage, it's very clear that they're on a mission, but they missed it. They missed it. Now, did Saul and the people think they had completed the mission after they initially, before Samuel shows up? Did they think they had done a good job? You can nod. This is a good time to nod. Yeah, they did. Okay? They did. He even built a monument. Okay? That's usually a sign. That's the trophy. It's usually a pretty good sign you think you did a good job. His first thing he says to Samuel is, I obeyed the command of God. So they assumed that they had done the right thing, but they had not. They thought that they were doing what the Lord wanted them to do, and actually they weren't. They confused, this is the scary part of this passage, they confused their disobedience with obedience. They confused their disobedience, their direct disobedience to the Word of God, with obedience. They thought by doing that, they were doing the will of God. That's the scary part of this. So, as I thought about this week, and and I looked at some of the principles that we're going to draw from this passage, can we do the same thing? Can we as Christians confuse disobedience with obedience? Can we actually be disobeying the Word of God, not being on mission, thinking we're on mission? Can we have reasons that we don't do the things we know we're supposed to do? And think we're following God's will? From this passage, we can see, I see other things, but we can see five warning signs that our obedience might really be disobedience. Five warning signs that we need to think about that our obedience is really, maybe, could be, disobedience. I want to go through these warning signs. I'm going to go through them fairly quickly. I decided not to spend a lot of time elaborating. We're going to State it. I'm going to look in the text, show you where it is in the text. It's pretty obvious in all the text. I might make a few comments, but I decided not to elaborate a lot on it for the main reason that if I start giving too many, too many illustrations or points or explanations, we will focus on the explanation and not the point. And I believe it's so, most of this is so obvious from the text, we don't need to unpack at length what it is. What I'm going to ask you to do Personally, this is, even though I'm going to use the we language because it is about us together, I am going to ask you personally to think. As we read through these, I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit will work in your heart. And some of these you're going to go, okay, I don't, I don't quite get that one. But I'm going to guess that some other ones you're going to say, ooh, ouch. That might be something I need to pay attention to. The first one, our obedience might really be disobedience if... We value people's opinions of us more than, we, than God's purpose for us. We might be, our obedience might really be disobedience if we value people's opinions of us more than God's purposes for us. Where do we see that in the text? Well, pretty, actually pretty straightforward in verse 24 where Samuel says, um, Saul says to Samuel, when he finally confesses, I have sinned, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord, and he gives his reason. Why? Because I feared the people. I feared the people. Fear isn't just necessarily that he was afraid that they would kill him or harm him. We sometimes put fear under the category of bodily harm or some kind of thing like that. His fear was more of a concern of an anxiety of acceptance 
by others. And most of us, if we struggle with fear of other people, it's because we want to be accepted. We want to feel significant in front of them. And we fear that they will look at us less than that. So that's why we fear them. Uh, We don't want to appear weird or foolish. So we fear people. And in verse 30, he says, and he said, I have sinned, yet honor me before the elders of my people before Israel. Again, when he confessed the sin, he goes again and says, okay, I sinned, but I really, really need you to do this for the people so they'll think well of me. And notice that Saul calls them my people. They're, suddenly they're my people. I need you to help me look good in front of my people. He feared the people more than the commands of God. And sometimes when we wrestle with this and we think of our life in the church and being on mission and, and what we're doing, that, that we, uh, we fear the displeasure of other people more than the pleasure of God, displeasure of God. Sometimes we care more about what people think of us than we care about what God has already done for us. need to move on. Our obedience might really be disobedience if we value people's opinions of us more than God's purpose for us. And secondly, we use our personal insecurity as a reason we can't do something. We use our personal insecurity as a reason why we can't do something. Where do we get that? Verse 17. And Samuel says to Saul, though you are little in your own eyes. Samuel is acknowledging that Saul struggled with insecurity. Even though he was the king, he didn't feel like the king. And even though Samuel recognized that Saul, you you do not view yourself in the role you're supposed to do. You are insecure. Even though you are little in your own eyes. Read the rest of the verse. It says, Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you as king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission. Why then do you not obey the voice of the Lord? What Samuel's saying to, to Saul is, I know you feel insecure. I know you struggle with this. However, didn't God give you something to do? Didn't he make you who you are? Didn't he send you on a mission with the implied promise that he's going to see that through? Then why didn't you do what you were supposed to do? I think this is probably one of the more subtle ones of these warnings that I think a lot of us wrestle with. Well, what Samuel's saying here is though we, he uses the phrase, though we little in our own eyes, lacking self-confidence is not a valid reason for disobeying God. Lacking self-confidence is not a valid reason for directly disobeying God. It is just an excuse. It's just an excuse. Saul It was his excuse. Samuel says, it doesn't cut it. Insecurity, being introverted, being shy, not having the right personality or skills, all the reasons we can come up with why we can't participate in some part of the mission, God says, eh, it doesn't wash. If this is my call in your life to do these things, then you have to trust that I actually will empower you to do them when necessary. But don't play the... I'm not good enough card, or I'm insecure card. It doesn't wash with God. John Wimber, a pastor, a number of years ago, remember, I'm dating myself now, remember the Rolaids commercial, how do you spell relief? How do you spell relief, people? 
R-O-L-A-I-D-S. Anybody remember that commercial? Okay, a few, few. Okay, well, leveraging that, John Wimber said, how do you spell faith? He goes, I spell faith R-I-S-K. Risk. It is risk. To have faith that God is going to do what he promised to do is risk. Otherwise, it wouldn't take faith. But it takes us, and insecurity is not a reason to put it down, put, uh, to avoid it. Of the warnings that I give you today, this is probably the one, I, this is not probably, this is the one I struggle with the most. I struggle with insecurity a lot. That phrase, uh, being little in your own eyes, I think is a great phrase. And I think of that myself for myself. I am very much an introvert, a very strong introvert. I am shy. I, um, I, I feel awkward around people. And yet... God has called me specifically to a public ministry. Like being up here. I'd rather not be up here. But this is what he has called me to do. It would not be okay for me to say, Lord, I can't fulfill my roles as an elder because I don't like it or because it makes me nervous or because I'm insecure. He's called me that. You know what gets worse? Is This isn't my day job. My day job, I work for an association of churches, and I train leaders. So what do I get paid to do? Traveling around and all the time. I get paid to have a public ministry to train other people to have a public ministry. Okay? Talk about awkward. Talk about lacking confidence. And I go places, and it's even worse because everybody knows who I am. I'm a director. I work here. I'm up in front a lot. I don't know who half the people are. So they're always talking to me. I'm like, who are you? I don't know who you are. Does that unnerve anybody else? Okay? They're asking me for my opinions on their churches and their leadership, and I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. And this is where this is where prayer comes in very helpfully, okay? My point being this. God has called us. Insecurity is not a reason for us to avoid it. Our obedience might be really disobedience if we value people's opinions of us more than God's purposes for us. We use God's we use our personal insecurity as a reason we can't do something. And thirdly, we are listening to a lot of voices except the clear voice of God's word. We are listening to a lot of voices except the clear voice of God's word. In other words, when we ask, if you are asked and we ask people uh, what you're doing and why you're doing it, who is mentioned? How do they, what do they mention are the influences in their life of why they live the way they live? In verse 24, Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned and I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He didn't just fear them. He listened to them. What do you, what do you guys want? Oh, okay. I'll do that. I can do that for you. Okay? Okay. Um, and in verse, uh, in verse 19, uh, Saul's uh, conviction or Saul's confrontation of excuse me, Samuel's confrontation of Saul was, why did you not then obey the voice of the Lord? He went from being the commandment of God to, let's get more specific. It's not just something on a list that we're checking off here, Saul. The voice of God. And we show the, the pathways, we talk about lists. It's not just commandments as a list. It is God speaking to us as our generation and our time. And God's voice is to us. I need you. I want you to do this. I'm inviting you into my ministry of reconciling the world to himself. Who are we listening to in that? In verse 22, 
And the center, what I think verses 22 is the center of this whole passage. This is part of the main point of that verse. He says in verse 22, And and Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings as sacrifices? As in, listen to this, obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold. So that's a rhetorical question. That's a rhetorical question, by the way. Does, Does God delight more in this than that? And then he goes on, he answers his own question. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To what? Listen is better, implied better than the fat of rams. The fat of rams is is language meaning the best stuff. In the sacrificial system, the fat of rams was the primo stuff. So he's saying, "Don't, don't give me the best stuff. Listen. Listen to what I say. And, uh, and we, we often, as elders, listen, as people talk to us about their life, as they talk about us, what's going on in their life, and the church, just all aspects of it. One of the things, this is a hint, we listen for is references to the Word of God. And it's not just a checklist like, okay, because you quote a Bible verse, you're good to go. But the question is for us is, how is the Word of God influencing your decision-making and what you're doing and not doing and, and your lifestyle and those things. It should be a regular part of that. How much do you talk about God's word? A year or so ago, we had in this room, Josh is preaching about God's leading. And, and he asked the people to share, hey, how has God led you in making a decision recently? And about a dozen people shared. Afterwards, as Josh and I debriefed the service, we were both a little disconcerted. Because not a single person mentioned the scripture. Not a single person mentioned the Word of God. And that's a problem. That's our problem. As, as leaders, that's our problem. How are people going through their lives seeking advice and counsel and getting all these influences and making huge life decisions and the primary reference, or even a secondary reference, isn't even the Word of God. In there, in verse 23, I'm going to take a little parenthetical risk here and sidestep to a little... This is, has to do with listening. In verse 23, Samuel says this. For the rebe- for, this, is a, this is found in verse 22. Obviously, it's verse 23. For rebellion is as sin of divination, and presumption is in, as iniquity and idolatry. For rebellion, as is the sin of of divination. What's divination? Divination is getting information or direction from supernatural powers, not from God. We would say the demonic, the paranormal, the occult. Seeking other means for God to give you... I misspoke. Seeking influences, direction in your life by supernatural beings, not God. And in this about listening to the voice of the Lord, he then, the very next thing he says is, rebellion, is what Saul and the people did, is as the sin of divination. Listening to supernatural, demonic influences. It's a false spirituality that actually opposes God's word and the Holy Spirit's working. So Saul's automatically going here saying, you were supposed to be listening to God, but this rebellion... It's as if you were listening to something else. In the book of Deuteronomy, in in Moses, when he wrote the law, has a lot to say about divination. I want to read you one place. 
Before I do that, I think we live in a culture fascinated with this. The paranormal, the supernatural, movies, TV, books. It's actually culturally popular. It's never been unpopular, but I think it's even more so. And yet, what does the Word of God say about this? Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, grace and deliverance, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of the nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his sons and daughters in an offering. So he starts off with burning your children. So what does he else include in the list? Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes, interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer. A necromancer is someone who speaks to the dead or listens to the dead. Or one who inquires of the dead. The next on the list. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. To participate in this, he says, God hates that. And because of this abomination of the Lord, your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispose, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Why did the nation of Israel want a king to be like the other nations. They wanted that other influence. And they got it. And he's saying, that's rebellion against God. And I just want to pause here because I think we live in a culture, and even in the Christian community, that is fascinated, and I'm concerned just personally, this is a Royce thing, to the state that we're fascinated with the paranormal, when the scripture clearly says, Repeatedly, God hates that stuff. And to mess with it, to listen, to participate, is not good. It does influence us. And some might be quick to object. No, I'm just watching TV. I'm just watching movies. I'm just reading. It's not the same. It's not actually influencing me. No harm is really done. Well, first of all, I beg to differ. I think it is influencing you. That's why you continue to watch those things, if you do. But it's also like saying, well, no harm is done by just viewing and listening to that stuff. Well, that's like saying, well, pornography doesn't do any harm because I'm not actually having sex with a woman on the screen. I'm just watching. Therefore, it's not wrong for me to do that. It's not harming my wife or my marriage. Well, that's nonsense. Why is it any different with the paranormal? Why is it that we can say we can participate in these activities and think, oh, we're just spectators? But we're not just spectators. It influences us and gets us thinking, and our mind is saturated more with that sometimes than with the Word of God. Samuel says rebellion is as the sin of divination. He's comparing those two directly. To rebel against God is the same thing as listening to these forces. And he could reverse the two, and the the logic based on Scripture is equally true. To listen to these things is rebellion against God. Close parentheses, I'll move on. Take it for what it's worth. 
Our obedience might really be disobedience if we value people's opinions of us more than God's purposes for us. We use our personal insecurity as a reason we can't do something. We're listening to a lot of voices except the clear voice of God's word. Fourthly, we can take credit and blame others at the same time. If you can take credit for something and blame other people at the same time, that might be a red flag. Saul says, remember back in 15, they have brought them out from the Amalekites, and the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice the Lord, but we put the rest to the destruction. He took credit for the right thing that he knew was right, and he blamed others for what he kind of knew, he did know, was wrong. At the same time, later in verse 20, he says, I have opened, um, um, when, when Saul says to Samuel, I, ha- I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission of the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, which is a direct contradiction. I have devoted Amalek to destruction, but the people took the sheep. Again, the same thing. This time he reversed the order. I, I did what is right. They did what is wrong. I don't know what your problem is, Samuel. It's not my fault. And, and when things go well, we are often quick to acknowledge our involvement in life, in business, socially, in the church. But when things don't go well, we tend to distance ourselves from the problem, and we're just as quick to point fingers as we are to take ownership. I see this particularly in, when it comes to relationships. When people have tension or break in relationships, and you listen to one side of the story, man, you're right. You... You, are, you must be a saint because you handled that situation right. We hear one side of the story. That other person, what a jerk. He obviously is in the wrong. And then you go talk to the other person, and guess what? You reverse the order. God wants us to uh, not just say we did something wrong, or we did something right, they did something wrong. There is a part of reconciliation, of re- relationships, that requires that we own what we own, both positive and negative, and so do they. And if we're honest, we will be reconciled to them through that process. But to blame and to, and to uh, focus on what we've done and not what other people do, and most of you know what I'm talking about, and I don't want to belabor the point, but I see this most often where we take credit, I didn't do anything wrong, but they, it's their problem. That's, that's blaming others. Our obedience might be really disobedience if we value people's opinions of us more than God's purposes for us. We use our own personal insecurity as a reason we can't do something. We listen to a lot of voices except the clear voice of the word, and we can take credit and blame others at the same time. And fifthly and lastly, we hide behind religious activity to make us feel better. We hide behind religious activity to make us feel better. Where do we see this? Well, in verse 15, Saul says that we brought these people, we saved these people. Why, Saul? Why did we save the oxen? And why did we save this? Because we're going to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Did God ask them to save anything to make a sacrifice? No. They made it up. And in verse 21, And the people took the spoil and the sheep and oxen, the best of things devoted to destruction, so we can sacrifice them to the Lord. And Samuel said, And Samuel said, has the Lord such a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in vain the voice of the Lord? Now, he, he's, he's, um, he's not saying that it's either or. He's not saying that it's either give me a sacrifice or obey me. 
What he's saying is, what, what's the point of a sacrifice? What is, why, what is he talking about sacrifices here? What is the point of, in Israel of a sacrifice? Somebody say it out loud. Atonement for sin. It's part of the act of worship. It reminds us that we're sinners, and it also reminds us of God's provision of forgiveness and grace and, and atonement for that justice, for that sin. So it is a required act of worship. So God's not saying, I like this, not that. He says, I like both. I need the sacrifices to remind me to forgive you. But he's saying, first, do I delight in one more than the other? And the answer is, yes. God does delight in one more than the other. He does delight in obedience more than acts of worship that are shallow because it's actually disobedient. That's what his point is there. And we live sometimes, I think, and I, and I struggled myself on this. This is one of those things that I find myself doing, that as I go through the busyness of life, and uh, it's like I live my life measured by a scale, some kind of personal cosmic scale, that if I mount up the good things I do, like going to the church and home community and praying and reading my Bible, it mounts up on this side, but the things I know I'm not getting done or the things I know I'm supposed to be doing are the sin, as long as that scale pretty much you know, stays balanced, I'm okay. I get a little panicky when it gets a little out of whack, okay? When it starts getting, hey, I've done really well, that gives me a little more freedom to sin, right? I've got I to even it out. Now, I don't know how many of you think that way. I catch myself thinking that way. And sometimes I think we do that. So if I do the religious good things, that's going to keep God happy and off my back for the things I don't do well. And that I hide behind that. And I'm going to guess some of you do too as if going to the gathering or home community counterbalances those things. Now, he's not saying it's either or. It's saying it's both and. And we see this. We see this as parenting. If I was a parent and I had to tell the child, hey, pick up your toys, put them away, and then come to dinner. And they pick up the toys, they put them away, and they come to dinner. Said once, done right away. Or I go over here and I say, pick up your toys, put them away, and come to dinner. But they don't do that. Whatever reason, they don't. They refuse. You probably tell them a couple times. Hopefully not too many times, and then you got to step up and act and discipline them and make sure they still, maybe with a little kicking and screaming, pick up the toys, put them away after the discipline, have some reconciliation, and then come. As a parent, which scenario do you prefer? Okay, which do you prefer? I didn't say which one do you experience more often. I said which one do you prefer? You prefer the first one. Why? Well, yes. Besides it being a lot less hassle for you. It also demonstrates, the child is demonstrating respect and humility and submission and a white way to live. Over here, they're demonstrating rebellion and lack of submission and lack of respect, and you have to deal with that. So what's the difference between obedience to God and sacrifices? Why do we offer sacrifices? Because we sin. It's like God's disciplining us. Does he want to do that? No, he will. He has to provide for that. But he desires instead that we would obey and do the things we need to do. In Matthew, Jesus even said that if you're offering your gifts at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, what are you supposed to do? Leave. Stop. Stop worshiping. Go, get reconciled to your brother, then come back and worship God. So Jesus is saying the same thing. If we're worshiping God and yet we're in disobedience to the clearest teaching of Scripture, that's a problem. We hide behind the worship instead of obedience. Now, we did those five principles, but where, where's the gospel in this? Now, the point of the Emmaus Road is we're pointing to the gospel. 
were pointing to Christ in these passages. Didn't mention his name, but he's here. He's directly alluded to in a number of places. First of all, Saul is the first king of many kings. We will be talking about kings for the rest of the year. Not all we'll talk about, but there, this, Israel has kings from now on until the time of Jesus. So that's one thing, and we know that Jesus is the ultimate king. The fact that God said in his law, there's a place for a king who is going to know my word and serve me fully, he's pointing to Christ. So even having a king like Saul, as imperfect and rebellious as he is, is pointing to the fact that there is a coming king, a king of the Jews, as Jesus is called, who is going to talk about his kingdom and who's going to implement it, who's, who the scripture says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. But there's even a more, I think, explicit reference to Christ in this than even that, having a king. Verse 22, I told you, I thought it was the, the pinnacle or the, the main point of this uh, account. In verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as a great delight in burnt offerings, as in sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen, implied, is better than the fat of rams. Obeying is better than sacrificing. We know that Christ came and obeyed. He obeyed perfectly. He did everything that the Father told him to do. He was both the king, but he was the obedient king. And and what's even more uh, significant of that is, the, in the passage or in the Bible is that Christ's obedience leads him to being the sacrifice. It's not that he is comparing, well, is it sacrifices or obedience? Jesus chose obedience. No, his obedience led him to being the only true sacrifice. He, because of his perfect obedience, he was the perfect sacrifice. Philippians 2 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Samuel's comparison of listening and obedience to being a sacrifice that atones for sins, Christ fulfilled both sides of that perfectly. And because of that, our sins are forgiven. Paul says that for our sake, the Father made Christ a king to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We, we get to be, have that kingly state of righteousness because the king humbled himself and died for our sake. Because we don't obey fully, because we don't do those things, God forgives us through Christ. When we talk about communion and we celebrate it every week, what we are celebrating is Christ's perfect obedience to the Father. That he did everything the Father asked him to do. We're also talking about Christ's perfect sacrifice for our sins. We're celebrating that in Christ, because of what Christ has done as King, we are accepted, we are secure, and we are significant. All those things, sometimes those warning signs, a lot of those deal with acceptance and security and significance. And yet we know that those things, for us, are received from Christ, not achieved in what we're doing. Well then, well, wait a second, if we receive those and achieve those, what's the big deal about obedience? What's the big deal about mission? If we receive all those things because of Christ's uh, provision for the cross, why do we care about those things? Well, because the scripture tells us that we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have been given a mission. And a mission that God expects us as Red Sea, us as families, us as individual people to participate in. And he expects that we will, because of the freedom and our response of faith, the freedom of forgiveness and our response of faith, that we will seek out what it is that he has created us to do. And we will pay attention to our lives in ways that will help us to be aware of those um, the warning signs that maybe we think what is uh, really, we think is our obedience is really our disobedience, which is, by the way, one of the main, not only, it is a big part of the reason we have developing community. And we are family together, and we share those things with each other so we can hold each other accountable and speak and encourage each other into our lives. As you go today, I would ask, and you come up to communion, I hope that maybe one of these would respond, you would respond to and think about if something as Lord has touched your heart in one of these, as you come up to communion, know that your forgiveness is there because of what Christ has done, but also the call to obey, the call to be on mission is also there every week in communion. So as you take communion, think of these things is our obedience might really be disobedience if we value people's opinions of us more than God's purpose for us. We use our personal insecurity as a reason we can't do something. We're listening to a lot of voices except the clear voice of God's word. We can take credit and blame others at the same time. And we hide behind religious activity to make us feel better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your provision for us in Christ. I thank you that the uh, uh, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity who is completely God and divine, took it upon himself to become human and enter the world as a king. Not the triumphant king that the world expects, but a suffering king who took on our, our sins. And Lord, I pray that we can remember his obedience, remember his sacrifice. That Lord, it would drive us to being not people who are intimidated, but people who are responding in gratitude and joy and freedom to serve not because we have to, but because we get to. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your body. And we even thank you, Lord, that you have given us a mission to serve you on. We thank you in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.